Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? <clears throat> the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise that you were rejected, that you were scorned, and that you endured death in order to defeat it, that you rose in order to invite us to eternal life. May we know your victory this morning. May we trust in the hope of resurrection. May you be glorified in our midst. We pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So this is the third week of our series of sermons entitled Consider Jesus, during which we are looking at the New Testament book of Hebrews. And I I need to be honest with you and tell you that I am intimidated by this book. I'm intimidated by Hebrews. It's so rich, so dense, and occasionally so complex that I, uh, I get a little scared of trying to unpack its riches for fear of failing to do it justice. So Hebrews is unlike any other New Testament book. We don't know who wrote it, and we don't even know what it is. Letter, sermon, essay. We don't know. What we do know is that this book invites us to consider Jesus with the utmost care, who he is, what he's done, and why. The first chapter, which we looked at over the last two weeks, is a tour de force that emphasizes the divine nature of Jesus Christ. He's the only son of the living God. He's greater than the angels, creator, conqueror, worthy of our worship. In our passage this morning, though, the author's attention shifts from the divine nature of Jesus to his human nature. We're reminded that Jesus is one of us, flesh and blood, and we are told why he became one of us. Here's what we're going to learn from our passage this morning. We're going to learn this. Jesus shared our humanity in order to perfect it. Jesus shared our death in order to defeat it. And then finally, Jesus now shares his inheritance with us and gives us glory and honor. So I hope you'll turn to Hebrews 2. If you're not there already, it's on page 1001 in those red Bibles. And our section begins in verse 5 with a mention of angels and a return to the Old Testament. So in chapter 1, the author argued that Jesus is greater than the angels in part because he is the only one who conquers God's enemies. In chapter two, our author returns to this theme and develops it further as he quotes once again from the Psalms to prove his point. So verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. 
It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. These verses, they come from Psalm 8, which is a meditation on humanity. David, the author of the psalm, he looks at the the grandeur of the nighttime sky and he says to God, why is it, why is it given just how glorious the universe is that you would care about us, specks of flesh in a light show universe? What is it about being human that's so special? And God's answer captured in the psalm and quoted here is that we human beings have been made for a special purpose. God gave us glory, honor, and power as rulers over his creation. The incalculable riches and the indescribable beauty of the universe, they're ours. Not just to admire, but to steward, to care for, and to develop In making this claim, David was simply echoing the teaching of Genesis 1 and 2, where we're told that human beings have been made in the image of God and given dominion over every living thing. Genesis teaches us that to be a human being is a glorious thing. But Genesis also teaches us that we have failed miserably at our vocation. Instead of serving as God's stewards, we have rejected him. Instead of trusting and submitting to God, we've tried to take over his job. And this rebellion of ours that leads to death. At the beginning of this new section in Hebrews chapter 2, we're reminded of the glory of our humanity even while that dark shadow of death stretches over us. Now, death hasn't been mentioned yet in the text, but it will be soon, and it will come to dominate the discussion. So what happens when God's image bearers go rogue, which is what we've done? Does God scrap the original plan and simply start over? No. He sends his son to pick up the pieces by becoming a human being and living life the way it was meant to be lived all along. So in in quoting this psalm about the glory of humanity, the author of Hebrews is inviting us to remember our created purpose, to confront our failure, and then to recognize that Jesus has fulfilled our human vocation more perfectly than we could have ever imagined. He did not fall into sin. He obeyed God the Father. He embodied the glory and the honor of humanity. Although it's not obvious in verses 5 to 7, in verse 8, the author of Hebrews makes clear that this psalm is painting a portrait of Jesus. Verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here the problem of death comes to the fore. And in verse 9, Jesus is mentioned by name for the first time in Hebrews. It is Jesus to whom everything is subject. It's Jesus who's in control. It's Jesus who's crowned with glory and honor. Of 
Of course, the author recognizes that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, Jesus has not yet ushered in the new creation where sin, suffering, and death will be no more. But he has taken the throne and the day will come. So Psalm 8 is about us, but it's also about Jesus. And when we understand how it is about Jesus, we begin to grasp that it can still be about us because our humanity has been restored in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's invited us to share this new humanity by trusting in him. But verses 8 and 9, they do more than show that Jesus shared our humanity in order to perfect it. They explain that Jesus shared our death in order to defeat it. And here we move on to our second theme that animates this chapter of Hebrews. I want you to listen again to verse 9. And I want you to notice in the incredibly important little word for at the end of the sentence. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus doesn't experience death as an act of solidarity with us. He experiences death for us. But what does the author mean by this? In Genesis 3, we learn that the consequences of our rebellion against God, the consequence of that rebellion is death. As Paul puts it, the penalty of sin is death. So death hangs over us from the day that we're born as the necessary end of our sinful existence. And though God remains sovereign over all things, it's the devil who's behind the power of death, who's given power over death. But what would happen, what would happen if a human being never sinned and therefore didn't have to die? And what would happen if this sinless man chose to die on behalf of sinners in their place? Well, if those things happen, then the whole logic and power of death would break down, wouldn't it? If a sinless man chose to die, wouldn't he be more powerful than death because he had chosen it rather than it choosing him? Jesus chose death even when death had no right to him. He mocked death's claim to absolute power precisely by choosing to die. But he didn't die just to prove a point. He died as a sacrifice for sin. The author explains how Jesus' sacrificial death for us works according to God's plan in verses 10 and following. This is what he writes. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. There's a lot going on in those paragraphs. Because Jesus shared our humanity, our flesh and our blood, he could offer his body as a sacrifice for sin. He could die in our place because he too was human. But when Jesus died, he didn't die as one who deserved the penalty of death. He died as one who assumed the penalty for our sake so that when he died, he nullified the sentence hanging over us. He took away the sting and the power of death. But that wasn't all. When he rose from the dead, he destroyed the power of death to keep us down. All of Hebrews is written in light of Jesus' resurrection, which proved that he really was who he said he was, and that he really had accomplished all that he set out to accomplish. By taking away the power of death and the permanence of death, Jesus took away the one thing that Satan holds over us. Jesus shared our humanity in order to perfect it. Jesus shared our death in order to defeat it. Jesus now shares his inheritance with us and gives us glory and honor. That's our third and final theme. So did you notice in verse 10 that the author refers to those who've been redeemed by Jesus as sons? He goes on in verse 11 to refer to us as brothers. And these are inclusive terms, meaning sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. Then putting the words of Psalm 22 in the mouth of Jesus, we're once again called brothers and sisters in verse 12. And finally, we're called children in verses 13 and 14. Through the redeeming work of Jesus, we become children of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus. And what this means, what this means is that we share Jesus' inheritance as the Lord of all things. He restores to us all that was intended in the creation of the world, and he makes us fit for the new creation. He gives us glory and honor as children of the living God. Now, perhaps most powerfully in this context, Jesus rescues us from shame, and he frees us from fear. The author tells us in verse 11 that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In spite of all that we've done to tarnish the image of God, Jesus is not ashamed to be our brother. Nor is he ashamed to be one of us, a human being. The the quotation from Psalm 22 says that he calls us brothers from within the midst of the congregation, not from outside of it meaning that he's still one of us. He reigns in the heavens, risen and exalted as a human being, fully God, fully man. Now, if Jesus is not ashamed of us or of our humanity, then we need not be ashamed of ourselves. Shame is such a powerful emotion. It's one that many of us struggle with. Some of us are ashamed of things that we have done, the memory of which can bring a flash of heat to our face or cause our hearts to race. Some of us are simply ashamed of being ourselves. We feel like failures or frauds. We fear we've wasted what was given to us. We know we've disappointed those who love us. We question our worth 
And we hope that God might have pity on us. But you know, God doesn't come to us in pity. He doesn't shake his head with embarrassment, holding his nose as he drags us into heaven, wishing that he'd never bothered with us. He doesn't come to us with pity. He comes to us in love. He rejoices over us as his own sons and daughters. Jesus doesn't cover our shame with fig leaves. He replaces it with glory and honor and dominion, sharing his perfect humanity with us. In Christ, there's nothing to be ashamed of, no matter what your past looks like and regardless of the failures that haunt you. We're rescued from shame. And with it, we're freed from fear. In verse 15, the author speaks of the fear of death that enslaves us. Now we read that, and for most of us, that feels just a little bit overcooked. We tend to agree with Woody Allen, who famously said, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) Fear of death itself may not keep you up at night. But there are plenty of other things that we fear that are evidence of the fear that we have of our mortality. We fear dementia, the loss of our minds. Or perhaps worse, we fear being stuck in bed for months or years with a clear mind and a helpless body. We fear being a burden to our families. Or we fear navigating the end of life without family around to care for us. We fear loss of control. We fear loss of autonomy. We fear loss of our freedom. These things are real. But you know what? Control, autonomy, and so-called freedom, they're all part of our rebellion, not our redemption. We were created as stewards, not as gods. We were never meant to be in total control. Likewise, we were created for dependence on God and on one another. We were never meant to be autonomous, to stand alone. And the freedom that we think we want, which is freedom from all external constraint, that's not what we were made for either. We weren't made to be untethered, floating aimlessly like a helium balloon on a summer afternoon. We were made to be with God, tethered to him, and fulfilled by him. So we fear the loss of these things as the last vestiges of our sinful nature. But in Jesus Christ, we can let them go. We don't need to fear the end of the the lives that we now live, because the lives we will one day share in Christ will be the lives that we were always meant to live. Jesus shared our humanity in order to perfect it. Jesus shared our death in order to defeat it. And he now shares his inheritance with us, giving us glory and honor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've just skimmed, skimmed this passage and its profound teaching. But we are thankful for what you've shown us, that You shared our humanity in order to perfect it. We praise you that you shared our death in order to defeat it. And we marvel at the fact that that you now share your inheritance with us as sons and daughters of God Almighty. 
and that you give us glory and honor in him. And that one day, all things will indeed be subject to your rule and reign. And we will know no longer shame and fear, but only glory and honor in your presence. We praise you and we thank you. Amen.